Good morning, everyone. Um, We're reading um, this morning from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. So Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. And you can follow along on the screen um, behind as well. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the other postpond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Today we are in Acts chapter 17 and we find Paul at a new job site, a new gospel job site. And unlike the detailed description of all the individuals from last week in Acts chapter 16, this week we don't know anything about the individual people that get saved by God's grace. The closest we get is the name Jason, um, who gets actually taken before the authorities. He was someone that Paul stayed with. This week we have a kind of a big picture we learn that there are God-fearing Jews and God-fearing Greeks, Jews, and some prominent women. But this is intentional, because rather than the individuals that we get saved from last week, Acts 17 is more about the missional toolkit that Paul uses while he's on these job sites. The missional toolkit that Paul uses on these job sites. Specifically, we see today, and all of Acts 17, the missional nature of God's word. And how Paul uses God's word to point one another to Jesus. And we'll explore that today. Our missional Bible. And maybe though, when you hear that, mission and Bible, you think that sounds really strange. That That's not normally the mission strategy that I think of when I think about how to get someone saved. Mission and Bible. 
But you see, today, perhaps more than ever, we need to resist the idea that says Jesus isn't up to the task of 21st century people, that the Bible isn't enough, that we really need to just give it a nudge along because it's not sufficient to get someone saved or to be useful in a conversation. Have you ever thought that? I know I have at times when I'm thinking about people I know, I think, oh, I just need some help. I don't think God's word's good enough. Maybe that's been you this week at work or in your family. But this week, uh, in uh, in the discipleship group that I'm part of, um, and I see everyone in that group smiling because they're going to hear another story from that, but and, um, Murray Cafield, an Australian uh, pastor and scholar, talked about the Bible like this. He said, imagine the gospel comes to you and it's a sharp sword. And then you take the gospel and you polish this sword and you put it in a glass showroom cabinet. And then you admire the gospel. And you get people to come and to show it off and say, look at this lovely sword in the cabinet. And you all take photos of it and you post about it online. And, and you're very proud of the gospel that you have and that you know. And you know everything about it, all the intricate details of this sword, you're very aware of. But it sits in a glass cabinet. You don't touch it, you just study it and look at it. And he said, whereas this sword that we have is meant to be wielded. It's meant to be a sword that we fight with. It's easy to love the gospel on the Bible, but the temptation is to never wield it, to never let it have the effect that it should have because we're protecting it and keeping it nice and safe, but we're not proclaiming it as we should. Because you see, the gospel is powerful in every single setting for every heart. And in Acts 17, we see Paul going into the synagogue persuading people from the Hebrew Scriptures, wooing them, using wisdom and being winsome in what he says to show Jesus is the Christ who has come, died, rised, and will judge the world in all righteousness. So repent and obey. And today, my hope is that you'll just get a shot in the arm of confidence in your mission or Bible, that you'll see that wonderful sword of the gospel And walk out of here going, yes, it is sufficient. And while God uses me to proclaim that, his word is enough. That you would genuinely see it as a viable, necessary part of your back pocket mission to carry around with you, literally, metaphorically, um, that it's useful at the dinner table and Saturday morning coffee and and over um, Monday morning work chats. The gospel is actually good. So let's see this. The first part we see is this proclamation in uh, verse 1 to 3. Paul gets to Thessalonica. He's traveled through uh, two other cities, and he comes to this major port trade city of the day. And it's a buzzing city. It's filled with Macedonians and Greek immigrants and Latin-speaking people, and there's enough Jews this week to make a synagogue, not like Philippi. And we're reminded, though, in verse 1, that Paul isn't alone. It says, when Paul and his companions arrived... Now, Paul is going to be the one to stand up. He's going to be the one to reason and explain Jesus from the Hebrew Scripture. But as he does that, he's not the only one in the room who believes in Jesus. We're reminded here once again that Paul is part of a gospel community who embody the life and the suffering and the love of Jesus. 
And so Paul gets there, and, and in verse 2 we read that every, on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining, proving that Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So how does Paul use his missional Bible here? Well, he reasons from Scripture, he explains, he proves... Does he try to win an argument? No, he just wants to help people see with new eyes that this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. I am proclaiming, he says. God is at work through Paul's proclamation. It's Paul's words and his stories and his skill as he argues from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah they need. He's seeking to bring God's people into God's Word so they can hear their speaking God call out to them in Jesus. And what happens is that when people saw this, some of them, it says, some were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. In the last few weeks of Acts, we've seen wonderful, miraculous things like earthquakes and jail doors being thrown open and people being made blind in the name of Jesus and demons coming out of people. And then you get to Thessalonica and none of that happens. It's just a really quiet few, three weeks, actually. Paul just gets up, very carefully, explains Jesus, and it's brilliant. It's just another example of the Spirit at work in a different setting to bring people to Jesus. After all, being Spirit-led is being Scripture-led, because God always leads in accordance with His Word. And in this instance, it's that people are persuaded that Jesus really is who He claims to be. You see, this is so great. See, our missional Bible is happy to be pressed, to have questions asked of it. Christianity welcomes the curious and the skeptics and the doubters. If you're not sure, if you don't know what it claims, think about what's written. God loves that. Christians love hearing questions. We may not have all the answers, but we'll point you to the God who does, because we want you to see how it all centers on Jesus and how He can be your Messiah as well. And when people have time and space to genuinely think through, consider, and listen, people actually believe. We're told that upper-class Greek men, educated Jews, and leading women all believe Jesus. Because the Bible meets thinkers and seekers in its pages, pulls them to Jesus to say that He's true and credible and reliable. Some believe. But... There's a contrast. Some do, but others don't. The persecution, but others. But other Jews were jealous. They round up some bad characters, and and they form a riot against Paul from the marketplace. And this is an angry, violent mob. The Jews go to Jason's house. They can't find Paul. They go to his house. They drag him out, bring him before the authorities, accuse him of some very untrue things. You see, gospel fruit is both acceptance and hostility. Gospel fruit is acceptance of Jesus, persuasive belief in Jesus, but it's also guaranteeing hostility. And for instance, jealous Jews, in this instance, they're losing synagogue attendance, right? People are getting saved left, right, center, and their attendance numbers are dropping week after week, and they don't like it. You know, each person, each culture has a different pressure point in which Jesus will become offensive. Maybe you've noticed that at work. Maybe you noticed that yourself before Jesus. 
In Philippi, it was because the Jews did not like Jesus getting their attendance books down. In Philippi, we saw the hostility came from the slave girl's owner because Jesus meant she could no longer be possessed by a demon and he lost his income and he wasn't happy about that. Today, we probably won't disagree with synagogue attendance. You probably won't have that conversation Monday. If you do, you'll know where to go. But it's probably not our issue. But you'll find disagreements plenty if we emphasize our need to be saved from sin or hell or God's judgment. It's not something people like to hear. People want to hear Jesus will make your life easy and nice and better, but we don't want a Jesus who will save us. Now, in this instance, the harassment was so bad that the mob started a riot, as I said, got out of hand, and they accused Jason and a few others of some false things. Notice that they don't say, the authorities, I'm annoyed that we've lost attendance. They say, they pick up Christian language and say, look, this, they're defying Caesar's decree saying there's another king called Jesus. They say that this Jesus and Paul is urging people to rebel from Caesar. And that's a really big no-no in, in the Roman society. It's very nasty. And it sounds convincing. Is it, is it true that Jesus is the king? Yes. But they don't get it. Christianity isn't about overthrowing civil government. It's about transferring priorities. Christians are called to submit to and respect secular authorities, which they do. Christianity is about new loyalties to a king who doesn't reign over a patch of land or a seat, but over individual lives. King Jesus changes the way you do business, your personal ethics, the value you place on life, how you respond to conflict. King Jesus forms new social structures and counts all people as equal, worthy of dignity and respect because of being made in God's image. And so that does shake up society, doesn't it? Just not in the way they're accusing Jason of. And this sort of thing baffles people who don't know Jesus since Acts 17 and all the way through today. I mean, a hundred years after this, a hundred years after, uh, someone called Justin Martyr wrote his first apologetic. You can Google it and read it. It's a wonderful read. And he wrote to the king. He said, "Um, King, I just want to correct some false thoughts about Christians because in Justin Martyr's day, uh, the, the, the people thought Christianity was barbaric and atheistic. They thought communion was a cannibalistic feast where you drank blood and ate people's flesh. Moreover, because Christians called it called communion a love feast and brothers and sisters to each other, they thought it was very incestuous. And so Justin writes and says, if you actually consider the claims of Jesus, you'll find none of that's true. Instead, you'll find that um, Christianity makes model citizens. We pay taxes. We respect the government. We're even beaten and we don't make a fuss. He even goes so far as to say, King, if your whole nation was a bunch of Christians, you would have the best, most faithful citizens ever because we love and care for others. Today, you'll find people like John Dixon or Sam Chan or Stephen McAlpine. You'll find organizations like City Bible Forum or the Center for Public Christianity doing similar things, responding with grace and wisdom to cultural conversations, cultural narratives with careful, well-thought-out biblical responses. I mean, they'll talk about things like Me Too and gender, patriarchalism, if that's the right word I've just made up, you know that one, undoing a perception about Christianity that's not quite true. Because you see, belief and opposition are fruits of gospel ministry. Moreover, 
neither belief or opposition should stop gospel ministry. You see, Paul's not satisfied with just a few believers. He hasn't said, great, I've got some Thessalonians and Philippians, time to go home to Antioch. Moreover, the persecution doesn't stop him preaching Jesus either. In verse 10, he just keeps pressing on. We see him arrive at his third city in his tour of Europe now, Berea. You know, Jesus was very clear that persecution will follow his believers. But he was also pretty clear too that the fields are ready for harvest. There are heaps of fertile fields, hearts ready for belief. We see that in verse 11 to 12. The Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. One of the things which I love about Adelaide is that every postcode has its own culture and reputation and is known for something. Moreover, Adelaide is also unique in that when you go and meet someone new, I guarantee you'll say two things at some point in the conversation. Where do you live and what school did you go to? And that is very Adelaide. Nowhere else typically gets those questions asked. And if you've moved here from interstate, you're probably going, I know, I've been asked that. It's really weird. Why do they care about the school I went to? Well, simply it's because every place has a reputation and we want to know where you're from, what reputation do you have? That will affect how I treat you and see you. See, that's what we do. Well, if Berea were a suburb of Adelaide and you met someone and you said, where are you from? I'm from, you know, 5,000 and 4,026 Berea. We would say, oh, you're one of those noble Bible type people, aren't you? What school did you go to? Berean public school. Oh, you're one of those Bible guys that think really hard and nobly about Jesus, aren't you? You see, their demeanor is different here. They're open-minded at Berea. They search and wrestle with God's word and what Paul's saying. But it's interesting that Paul, uh, Paul or Luke writes that they're open-minded as they consider the claims of Jesus. It takes an open mind to think about the Bible. They're letting God's word handle them. They're eagerly letting God's word handle them. They're letting God's word correct them and poke them and prod them. And this is the other side of the mission of the Bible. God's word invites questions, seekers and skeptics. But... God's word's not passive, and it it will talk back. God will speak back to you. He's going to expose and confront and challenge you in what you believe along the way. It's a conversational partner. And the Bereans are having this great chat to God. And they're doing it daily, you see. Daily, letting God's word expose and confront and change them so that Jesus and his grace can be applied to their hearts. And, like in Thessalonica, many start believing too. This is the mantra of our Bible, even today. People believe when it's read and thought about. It's the invitation I gave to a young adult many, many years ago. So let's read about Jesus from the Bible. Every two weeks, you just read Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And we did, and we met in a cafe. And the first time we got there, chapter 1 of Luke, and there was about 100 sticky notes all around the Bible. And this person said, I'm going to tell you why Jesus is wrong and false and evil at every one of these sticky notes. And I said, go, let's do it. And then we went for an hour and they just undid sticky notes. And I went, okay, yeah, thought about it. And we came back the next week. And another 99 sticky notes this time around chapter 2. 
and then another fortnight, and there was 98 the next week. And on and on it went for about eight months. And eventually, about eight months in, we hadn't quite finished the Gospel of Luke, and this person said to me, I'm now arguing with my Lord. I'm letting God's Word shape me. I'm not trying to shape it anymore. And that's the nature of our missional Bible. But remember, that's a good story. It doesn't always go that way. Belief and opposition are the fruit of gospel ministry. Soon, some annoyed Thessalonians intentionally come after Paul. I mean, they travel from their home all the way to Berea just to start another riot because they hear Paul's doing the same thing in this next town. That's a, that's a commitment level. That, that's a huge commitment. But they can't quite make the same noise because the Bereans are, catch on what's going on pretty quick. So they ship Paul off to Athens and we know it's not as hot because Silas and Timothy stay behind. So it's not a, it's, it doesn't really work as well as they'd hope, these, these, these jealous Jews. And in, in a whirlwind of God's sovereignty in these 15 verses, Paul has gone from Philippi all the way through now to the leading cultural capital of the day, Athens. And we'll leave him there for next week when we get to that. But it's a whirlwind few verses, isn't it? But we see great fruit, we see great use of the Bible, great persecution... But you know what? In every city, every single place, the same gospel is good for every soil. I mean, think of the landscape of lives that we've met in Europe so far. A businesswoman, a blue-collar jailer, prominent Greek men, uh, women who have high status in society, girls, Jews, Greeks, Romans, Latin speakers, every single one of them. Heart's different, soil of their heart's different, but the same message is good for every soil type. And our missional Bible is up to the task of each and every person we meet. And that should be a great encouragement in how God grows his kingdom. We have a speaking God speaking to us and his creation through the Bible. When we know it's about Jesus, we can show Jesus is the better way. And this is what's in Paul's missional tool belt, you see. The understanding the gospel is powerful in every setting. But... Paul also had wisdom to know which part of the gospel someone needs, to change the form depending on the soil type, to pull a gospel thread to help bring someone to faith. What do I mean? Well, imagine the weather report says it's 23 degrees and sunny on Saturday. That's a fact. Like the gospel, it's it's a news of something, you don't change it, you don't add to it, you don't argue with the weather in that sense, it's, it's going to be 23 and sunny, we, we believe that. Sunny 23. But the significance of that fact is different if you're a farmer who's going to plant crops, if you're a young couple about to get married, or if you want to paint your house, right? Same news, different significance. The gospel is one message that can be shaped and formed and emphasized differently depending on the people and the context. We see a great example of that in the rest of Acts 17 when Paul gets to Athens. And the way that we know what to emphasize is by knowing the people, and knowing the scripture. You notice that Paul in this verse reasoned from the Hebrew scriptures in the synagogue. He said words like Messiah. He used the story of God from the prophets from Abraham to show them what God's up to next. He was aware of the points of connection with his audience. In fact, a few years later, Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians. He wrote a letter to them, yes. And he says one of the, one of my most favorite verses to get this point across, to say how loving people, knowing people, building relationships is actually part of what it means to evangelize. 
in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, Paul says, we cared for you. Notice the team again, the community, we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. He's saying that through community, through relationships, you'll see what it's like to follow Jesus and how his people live. Because I love you so much, I'm not just going to share you my life, but also Jesus when I get the chance, because both matter. No Jesus, no gospel. And God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does, said Martin Luther. It means there are people in your world, like the Bereans and the Thessalonians, who are curious and open to hearing what Jesus says. Some people are happy to read it. Maybe there's someone right now that you think, if I just invited them to say, would you like to read the Bible with me? Just one chapter every two weeks for six weeks. Let's see what happens. Someone might say yes. But not everyone's there. We saw that today, didn't we? Sometimes it'll be met with anger and jealousy, hostility before you even get started. I mean, sometimes people go after you just because they know you're a Christian, like the the Thessalonians coming to Paul in Berea. Once your guy at work, girl at work, realizes you're a Christian, well, you're the target now. What have you done? Nothing. You're just a Christian. But God's word's powerful, you see. It can bring people to faith in Jesus because the same gospel is good for all soil types. Which means the same gospel is good for you. Later in Thessalonians, Paul reflects further on his visit and he says this of the believers, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. Christian, God's Word is at work in you. In you, His Word is at work, continually conversing with you, you see? And that's the encouragement. God's Word is at work in you who believe. Because I know that you want to see your friends and family know Jesus, I know that your workplace is tricky to navigate and it's hard yucca and it's just tough. But I also know that God's work is at work, God's word is at work in you in those spaces. Which means keep yourself each day examining the scriptures in the tradition of the Bereans. Move to their postcode. Become a Berean. Press on by God's grace day after day, even when it's hard, like Paul does. Because know that God's word is sweet for your soul. It's a light for your path, a tool that is powerful in every situation. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, talked about God's word being a lion. And I'll end with this uh, illustration. He says, suppose that a few people were going to kill a lion, capture it, and your job was to guard the lion so they couldn't do it. Well, I should suggest that if you want to defend that lion, you should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that will be the best way of defending it, for he would take care of himself. The best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Proclaim Jesus and him crucified. Let the lion out. The lion of Judah will soon drive away his adversaries or he'll bring them under his loving rule and care. This is the lion at work in you who believe. This is the lion at work in those around you. This is the lion of our missional Bible. And isn't that great encouragement? Wherever you find yourself this week, the gospel is good for every soul type, and it's still good for you too. So, over coffee, 
Think about this. What's God been up to in you through His Word in your life? Maybe this week, maybe the last 10 years, what's God been up to in His Word? And why don't you share that with someone? Or ask them. Jeff, great to see you. What's God doing in His Word in your life? It'd be great to know. Why not have that conversation now with someone who knows Jesus so that you can have that conversation later in the week with someone who doesn't know Jesus? Let me pray. Father, your word is sufficient. Father, everything you want to say to us is revealed in the person of Jesus. Father, you've given us, uh, given us your word as a light, as wisdom, as the way to salvation, and as a wonderful hope to proclaim. So Lord, may we drink deeply of your word. May it, it be planted deep within us. May it grow fruit in us, Lord. And may we then have the, the confidence, the hope that God's word is good for all our conversations this week and beyond. So Lord, help us Monday morning at work, at home with our family to know that your word is sufficient. And Father, would you use it to graciously save souls. So Father, use us for your glory and we thank you for your word and all the grace that you give us every day. In your name we pray, amen.